0: You may be seated? Good morning church, how are we all? That was very good, thank you. If you have your Bibles or scripture journals, and I hope that you do, I want to invite you to open with me to Exodus in chapter 24, and once you get there, jump down to verse 15. This will be in your scripture journal, page 114. Um, <clears throat> we are continuing, uh, we are in our series on Exodus, but this is part two of our look at chapters 25 through 31, okay? So we're kind of Pick it up where uh, we left off last week. Uh, We saw two big-picture things that I'll mention here in a moment from this section on the building of the tabernacle. And I'm going to read us a couple texts to get us going, and then make sure you leave your Scripture journal or Bible open. There'll be a couple other places that we read in our journey this morning. Okay. And by the way, in November, we will be starting our series, God willing, uh, in the book of Luke. And if you uh, dig those Scripture journals and you want one for Luke, we're fixing to order those. Those will only be four bucks, okay? So however you want to do that between now and then, grab as many as you uh, wish, just mark it in the offering plate, come by during the week, um, or you can uh, pay on Realm as well for that if you would like. Uh, But today we're going to be in Exodus 24. I'm going to read verses 15 through 18, and then we're going to look at 25, 8, and 9, okay? So let's go ahead and read this together. God's Word says, Then Moses went up on the mountain, And the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. And so we saw several weeks ago, this is the beginning of this section. Moses goes up the mountain to meet with the Lord, then God talks pretty much nonstop from 25 through chapter 31, okay, before the golden calf incident, okay, let's look. Let, we'll look at one more, 25 uh, verses 8 and 9. And if you write in your scripture journal, verse 9 is definitely one you should note. It says, "And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture. So you shall make it." Amen. It's God's word, may God write its eternal truths on all of our hearts. Several years ago, I heard David Platt, 2014, roughly, give uh, this illustration while he was pastoring in Birmingham um, at the church of Brook Hills, And I've slightly adapted it for our purposes, but this is a general uh, gist of what he said. I want you to listen to what he said, okay? He said, imagine for a moment that you live in another country, one completely foreign to this one, and you have an opportunity one fall to spend a week in Georgia. So, You come on a Sunday morning and you observe many people, even most, slowly rising to make their way to a building they call a church. They groggily approach that building for some sort of ceremony. Clearly, whatever happens at the beginning of that ceremony is not that important because most of the people don't come until after it started. I'm not looking at anybody. I'm just going to keep my head down. You watch them file in. And begin to mouth the words to songs, many of them almost expressionless, virtually emotionless. After which they sit down and passively listen to someone talk to them for a period of time. You notice people starting to get a bit fidgety and uneasy as the time for the ceremony to end approaches. And when it's finally over, they quickly walk out, some of them, even before it ends. As you walk with them, you listen to them, and you hear many of them talking with one another about something that happened the previous day, and apparently will happen again next Saturday." They smile and they laugh as they recount another ceremony they went to that was apparently a bit more interesting than this one. In fact, the rest of the week, that's almost all you hear people talk about, the coming Sunday, Saturday ceremony. Even the people who were at the Sunday ceremony are strangely silent about what they heard and sang about there, but very enthusiastic about the Saturday ceremony that can't seem to get here soon enough. As your curiosity is piqued, you begin to eagerly anticipate the other ceremony coming on Saturday. Saturday comes and you see people wake up and leave their houses dressed in some sort of outfit that they love to wear for these types of days. Many of them drive out of the city some three or four hours from the south, others a couple hours from the north where they gather together on what they called hallowed grounds for the Saturday ceremony. They get there early for this ceremony, way early, where they eat and drink and laugh and play, not just with their family or with their friends, but even with complete strangers, You've never seen community like this. When the time comes, they all, tens of thousands of them, enter a shrine together, you can't think of another word for it, where they raise their voices with passion to applaud an assembly of children they don't know playing a game on a field. As the game begins, they shout and chant and sing until they virtually lose their voices with far more passion than previous Sunday ceremony for sure. People don't look at their watches at at this ceremony. They're so engulfed in what they're seeing and experiencing that they actually get excited when it goes into what they call overtime. Because going long like this is a sign of a really exciting game. And the fun doesn't end after the ceremony is over anyway. When the boys, everyone is cheering for win the game, the the celebration has only begun. And the amazing thing is that it's not just the people who are at the ceremony who are celebrating. You come to find out, That thousands and thousands of others stayed back at home to watch the game on what they called a TV, though many of them are large enough to be virtual movie screens. They're actually designed that way to make the most of watching ceremonies like this. And around the state and even the nation, scores of people have circled up together around their screens to be part of the ceremony from a distance. They too, in their homes, are jumping up and down and high-fiving each other, celebrating when the ceremony is over. And then, when it's all over... Late in the evening, almost as if there's nothing to be prepared for the next day, they go to bed. Let me ask you a question, okay? If you were that visitor from another country and you came to this city or state during a week in the fall, which would you identify as the religion that is most important to this people? As the religion that most excites this people as the religion that most consumes this people. The people's approach to those ceremonies said something profound. Yes, how they approached it, what they did beforehand, how they conducted themselves during, and even what they did before and after said something about what they think of each activity. Is that fair to say? This is to say... How we approach worshiping the God of all things matters greatly. After all, is worshiping the Creator God not the most important reason why we gather together like this? But then the question looms large. What should inform these gatherings? What should be done in them? In other words, when the redeemed of God gather as the people of God to worship the triune God... What must inform what is done in these said gatherings? Does how we approach and view the worship of the triune God matter individually and corporately? Should it communicate what we prioritize in our lives and churches? And should it look different than a venue intended to entertain like an athletic competition? In Exodus 25 and 30 through 31, we have an extended section wherein the rescuing God of Israel speaks to the mediator of the people, Moses, and he instructs Moses to tell the people how to build the thing that he intends to dwell in among them, the tabernacle. And we saw last week that the tabernacle is another step in God's unfolding plan to have a people for his possession whom he will dwell with, uh, which finds its ultimate fulfillment in the work of Christ, which made a way for God to dwell with man now and eventually in fullness in the new heavens and new earth. We also looked at a couple important big things that this section is trying to communicate to Israel and us, and they were, just as a reminder, we saw last week the tabernacle and God's unfolding plan and the tabernacle and the centrality of God's word. This morning, we're going to look at three more, okay, before we move on to chapter 32 next week and the golden calf incident. So number one, the tabernacle, and the worship of God. Okay? The tabernacle and the worship of God. Let's not forget where Israel has been leading up to this point. Remember that this is important for what we're about to talk about. When when we were introduced to the Israelites in chapter 1, they had been in Egypt for over 400 years. All the Israelites knew was life in Egypt. All their parents knew was life in Egypt. All their grandparents knew was life in Egypt. All their great-grandparents knew was, guess what? Life in Egypt. All they knew was living in a country ruled by another people where they were the minority and a country that had a whole host of gods and temples devoted to the worship of these so-called gods. All they knew was the gods needed to be appeased in hopes that they would bless them. Or, if something happened that was bad, they needed to figure out what they did to upset these mute and lifeless gods. Or, before even taking on an action, they needed to try to figure out what the will of the gods was. The point is this they do not have the foggiest idea as how to live in relationship with the one true God. Do you think that's fair? <laughs> they have the foggiest idea. They just don't. They, they don't have a category for a God who speaks. They don't have a category for a God who saves through grace and mercy. They don't have a category for a God who takes the initiative to rescue and then provide the means to relate to him. They don't have a category for a powerful, living God who tells them what his will is rather than them having to guess. One cannot escape the fact that Israel does not at all know how to relate to Yahweh, nor do they even know how to operate as a nation or how to relate to one another in a God glorifying way? We can even go as far as say they don't know how to live, live as God designed. This is why God takes them, if you've ever wondered why God takes them on this extended wilderness route rather than a direct one, and why He gives them the Ten Commandments and the Book of the Covenant here. They need to learn, they can't just be whisked into the promised land blindly. And they're given the law, you'll remember, is, it's not intended to save them through their obedience to it. They're already saved by God. The law is to tell them how to live in light of God's grace and mercy because they don't know how to relate to him or even one another, which is why we have the Book of the Covenant. Carmen Joy Ms, in her excellent book, Bearing God's Name, which I would highly recommend, she said, everything they know about who they are, how to survive And what is expected of them is stripped away on that fateful night when they make their escape, leaving them vulnerable and uncertain. They don't know how to live under these new arrangements. But into this vacuum, Yahweh speaks. He answers the basic question of human existence in surprising new ways, offering himself as the solution to their needs for leadership, guidance, protection, and provision, and revealing his name as the key to their identity and vocation as a people. Israel does not know how... To worship Yahweh. And it's in this space that God speaks and gives what we have in 25 through 31 and 35 through 40. He is telling them how to worship him. He is telling them how to approach his holy and dangerous presence. And it's a gift because he actually wants them to come near, he wants them to worship him. But and here's the key they can't worship him in whatever way they see fit they can't say well this is how the Egyptians worshiped Ra and HaKat and Apis and Isis and Osiris surely we can worship Yahweh the same way they can't say this is how pagans worship their gods of wood and stone all mimic those practices nor does God say build me a tabernacle and whatever you think that should look like or what it should include is fine no god has definite ways that he is to be approached and worshiped, and it's intentionally designed to be distinct from how pagans worship their idols in 25 8 and 9 which we read god explicitly says before launching into the specifics of the tabernacle and the furniture that they are to build a sanctuary as he intends. Yes, he, I'm going to come and I'm going to dwell in your midst. This is a gift of grace, but it must be built exactly as I say. Scholar Dwayne Garrett, in his commentary on this passage, he, he takes 25.9 uh, and he translates it a different way. This is how he translates it. He says, you must make it precisely in accord with the pattern of the tabernacle, And the pattern of all its furnishing that I am showing you. And he notes that God is calling for a precise following of his plans. So not only are they to build exactly what he says and exactly the way he says, he must be worshipped and approached according to his ideas, not theirs. And this is all very reasonable, is it not? I mean, this is not some goofy, handcrafted idol we're talking about here. This is the awesome, terrifying, glorious, holy, indescribable creator God. And he is full of grace and mercy and loving kindness, but he's still a consuming fire. And you don't stroll up to a consuming fire in a casual or detached way, nor in a way that you see fit. His grace does not cancel his holiness. I mean, truly, is it unreasonable for God to dictate how he ought to be worshipped? Do you think that's unreasonable? Do you? Is he being too rigid? <laughs> Should the people be able to approach him in any way they feel best? I mean, my, so my favorite sport is baseball, OK? It always has been. I can watch it all the live long day, all right? And I don't think, any base, big baseball fans in here? Some, not as many. Randy, of course, got my back. I know he does. There's no <laughs> place in the world like a ballpark. Isn't that true? To catch a game, the sights, the smells, I mean, it's the best. But those who follow baseball know this, there are a ton of rules, right, Randy? (laughs) In fact, the Major League Baseball's umpire manual is 183 pages long. What's its purpose? It ensures that the players on the field play baseball, not soccer or football or cricket or horseshoe. Is it too strict to have these rules? Is it too severe to say that they should be enforced in the course of a game? No baseball fan would say that. In fact, a true baseball fan would say the opposite. It's because it's regulated that it makes it a great game. Why were baseball fans, do you remember this? Why were baseball fans so salty in 2017, 2018 when the Astros were cheaters? Because they violated, with the trash cans and whatnot, because they violated the sacred rules of the game. And we can say the same thing for any other sport, whatever sport you're a fan of. It's not a chore to play by the rules. Rather, doing so upholds the design of the game so that it can be enjoyed by the players and the fans alike. Far from being stuffy and rigid, God is giving Israel these instructions so they'll know how to worship him. They don't know how. And after all, and this is just logical, right? Who is it that should regulate how worship is to be conducted and approached, if not the God who's being worshiped. Right? Isn't that just reasonable? (laughs) In other words, who knows how to worship God better than God does? Which is why, if you just scan the section of 25 through 31, you'll see repeatedly, you you shall or they shall. Right? Right? They shall make an ark, and it should look like this. You shall make a mercy seat. You shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark. You shall make a table. You shall make a lampstand. You shall make a tabernacle. You shall make curtains, right? Over and over again. If you just scan through, you'll see it over and over again. (coughs) He is commanding them how his earthly dwelling must be constructed and how he ought to be worshipped. He even tells them what direction they must come in. And then the question for us then is this. Does God still call us to worship the way that he says? Or are we free to worship as we see fit? If God is unchanging, can we agree he's unchanging? That's what the Bible says. If God is the same yesterday and today and forever, I think we have our answer. No less today than Exodus, our worship should be informed by what God says in his revealed word. The elements of the service, what we might call liturgy, ought to be informed by what we find in Scripture, for God knows best how he should be worshipped. Is that a fair statement? You know, what's happened over, and this stuff fascinates me, is what happened over the last 50 years in the church growth movement and the past 150 years in the revivalist movement was many well-meaning pastors and churches asked first, how can we make our services to where they'll, they will attract unbelievers? And now, don't get me wrong. Churches should be thinking about how they can reach unbelievers, but asking how the church service can appeal to anyone, let alone non-Christians, is the wrong place to start. The question is not, how can we appease people? The question is, how does God in his word tell us to, how to worship him? how can he best be glorified in and among us? Because again, who knows better how God should be worshipped than God? Truly, when you think of what should be done in the worship gathering, what do you ask yourself? You've done this introspection before. Do you ask yourself what you like or prefer? Or what would please the most people? Or do you ask... What does God want us to do to worship him? Because the former could easily slip into idolatry where humans are the ones you're trying to satisfy rather than the God of all things who is the one who both calls us to worship and is the only worthy object. When the focus moves from what does God call us in his word to do to what will make customers happy. You're in the dangerous territory of gathering not to worship God, but to please humans. And that posture has all kinds of other consequences that reverberate throughout the church. Rather, we need our liturgy to be what God commands us to do, and thus the focus will be where it ought to be, on the God worthy of worship. And liturgy, by the way, I've used that word a couple of times. You might be thinking, that's a funky word I never use, right? Do you use that in your daily life, by the way? No, exactly. You hear that, you might think high church, right? Like Anglican or Catholic. But truly, every church has a liturgy. Every church has an order. Every church has elements in their service. That's all liturgy is, okay? <laughs> and our liturgy should thus be thoughtful and biblically driven. Let's circle back to our opening illustration, okay? You go to a bulldog game, and even though it isn't a church, though it might be for some people, okay, there's liturgy. Did you know that? Did you know there's liturgy at a bulldog game? Just think about it. You go to Athens, and at the game, there are elements that are done that if you were to ask why, there would be an explanation. Or, you know, if, if you ran into somebody who didn't know, they might say, well, we've always done it this way, right? And people even treat these liturgical elements with reverence and say, if you don't have these things, you're doing it wrong. You know, let me list, let me list a couple for you. Think of the arch. You know the arch? Gotta visit the arch, right? But don't walk under it. Unless you graduated from UGA, you heathen, right? There's also the dog walk. Got to play the battle, what, hem of bulldog. Everybody's super uncomfortable. Sorry, bulldog fans, but not really, okay. Play the battle hem of the bulldog, spot the trumpeter. Got to play Saturday in Athens video, right? If the dogs win, you go stand in line and you ring a bell that used to be in a chapel. And while I was looking into these things, by the way, if you're mad about this, This was all Chuck's idea, okay? He brought this up to me. Just just direct your complaints to him, okay? But I was looking these up, all right? And I found an article that described those elements, and I found this quote, and I want you to listen to what the student said, and he was talking about lighting up Sanford, okay? He said, I light up Sanford because it makes me feel like I'm part of something much bigger than me. Not only part of something that is a big deal in the here and now, but also a part of tradition that has been going on for years and will continue long after I graduate. Tell me that doesn't sound like liturgy. What we do in worshiping God is far more important than any other event we could go to, yes? It reminds us that we are part of something bigger than ourselves even more. It reminds us that we're part of a tradition that goes back 2,000 years, right? Church history didn't start with us or our grandparents. It goes back 2,000 years and will exist long after each and every one of us have left this earth. And that should put things in proper perspective. If the church has been worshiping for 2,000 years, what can we learn from them? If the church existed before and will exist after us, should we really be the focus of the gatherings? Since worshiping this great God is so important, we thus should not be flippant or casual about what it entails. Do you agree with that? God has made a way for us through Christ and the indwelling spirit to approach him in worship without many of the elements that we see in Exodus 25 and 31. (coughs) The veil is gone. The need for repeated sacrifices, gone. And we could come to God in worship, but he still cares how that is done and has commanded us in his word on things we should do when we gather he calls us commands us to pray to read scripture to preach and teach to sing corporately to encourage one another to give and to observe the ordinances of baptism and the lord's supper and in all those things our triune god must be the focus it is then that worship is in spirit and in truth when we worship and it's animated by the indwelling spirit who is also among us when we gather and done according to the truth of his revealed word. But next, something related to this stands out in this section, I think. Point number two, the tabernacle and the Lord's work the Lord's way. The tabernacle and the Lord's work the Lord's way. For this, would you join me in chapter 31? which will be on page 148 if you are in a scripture journal. Chapter 31. Let's read verses 1 through 11. 31, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship... To devise artistic designs to work in gold, silver, and bronze, and cutting stone for setting, and carving wood to work in every craft. And behold, I have appointed with him Aholiab, the son of Asamach, of the tribe of Dan. Did you like that? Did you like that phlegm there? There's there's one perk to being Arab, and it's that I could do that. And I have Given to all able men ability, and they may make all that I have commanded you, the tent of meeting, the ark of testimony, and the mercy seat that is on it, and all the furnishings of the tent, and the table of its utensils, the pure lampstand with all of its utensils, and the altar of incense, and the altar of burnt offering with its utensils, and the basin in its stand, and the finely worked garments, the holy garments for Aaron, the priest, the garments of his sons for his service as priests, and the anointing oil and the fragrant incense for the holy place, according to all that I have, according to all that I have, commanded you, they shall do. Now, we've noted of God showing Israel that worship should be done the way he prescribes. We've noted that God's ways, God says over and over in this section, things like they shall and you shall, instructing them on how to build things. And so, what we want to note now is that God is using these ordinary Israelites to construct his dwelling place, in other words, he's inviting them in to what he is doing. Further, we saw back, do you remember back in chapter 19, God tell the people that they have seen him rescue them and how he bore them on eagle's wings to bring them to himself and that they are thus a treasured possession uh, among all the people that they should be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. They have been invited into what god is doing in the world and they are to do what adam and eve failed to do as the people of god they are to spread his rule throughout the earth inviting the nations to come and be god's people so we can say this god works through the obedience of people god works through the obedience of people and we can even say ordinary obedience I mean the tabernacle is extraordinary, but they're building things, right? This is ordinary means of obedience. In chapter 25, God instructs Moses to have the people gather their plunder from Egypt and to use those for materials for the tabernacle. Now, here in 31, we see God conscript some fellas to lead the way in building what he has spent the last several chapters describing, and they shall, verse three, be filled with the spirit of God and he will give them ability and intelligence and knowledge and craftsmanship and they must verse 11 build according to all that God has commanded. And we noted last week that the tabernacle further's God's plan and that it resembles Eden, remember in some respects. It is a recreation, the tabernacle, pointing to the ultimate recreation that will come in scripture. Well, when triune God created the universe in Genesis 1 and 2, he simply did what? He just spoke, and everything was created. He created what's called ex nihilo, out of nothing. He did it without any contribution from anyone. But note here that as he recreates, as he plans for universe in miniature to be created for him to once more dwell with man, he speaks again, But he invites man into that recreating. Of course, if God wanted to, he could speak again and the tabernacle would just show up, right? He doesn't need anything or anyone outside of himself. As the psalmist says, our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. He can do whatever he wants. But he chooses to include people into what he's doing in the world. Not because he needs them, but because he loves them And his intended design for man was to be in relationship with him, to taste his grace, and in turn to obey gladly so that others will come to know him too. We see here that God speaks like he did in Genesis, but this time he gives instructions to be obeyed by all of Israel, and that obedience will bring blessing. Alec Moitier says, It is not enough for the willing-hearted to follow the whims and fancies of their hearts. Doing the Lord's work means doing the Lord's will. We also must note, this is some gee whiz for you, okay? This is the first time in the Bible where the Holy Spirit is said to fill people, in verse 3. So, of course, this is unique. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit did not indwell all of the redeemed. A unique feature of the new covenant is that the Holy Spirit indwells all who give allegiance to Christ. He fills them and the church like he did in the tabernacle and temple before the incarnation. So we are more (laughs) privileged, again, than Israel is here. Douglas Stewart notes something interesting in his commentary on this section of verse 6. He says that, this is how he defines, filled with the Spirit. He says, it's a biblical idiom for having the ability to do or say exactly what God wants done or said. Further, he says, the emphasis on verse 6 is more on being in tune with God's desires. By always making the right choices among the construction design options being constantly presented than simply them having skill from the Lord. Then he notes that women were involved in the construction as well. If you look at chapter 35, 25 and 26 and 29. In other words, not only did this require that the workers do the work of the Lord, but they be in tune with what that entails and that everybody was involved. In other words, it took a village, as it were. Now, drawing a line of application for us is not too difficult, is it? In fact, it's the same. We are filled with the Spirit of God and are thus equipped for service and to be part of what God is doing in the world. Yes? Not only does God pursue us and rescue us by His grace, but He invites us into His mission and his plan to rescue wayward humanity. And like the building and participation of the tabernacle here in Exodus, God is calling all of the redeemed to be part of his mission, and he is calling for it to be done his way for his glory. We are to seek God's will through God's word and leverage our lives for the great commission wherever the Lord has us. But you see, another implication of the church growth movement that I mentioned earlier was that it caused some to assume that ministry happened primarily at the church facilities and through church programs rather than how the Bible designed it of members being equipped here through the ministry of the word to go use it in their everyday lives to reach unbelievers in their sphere of influence. Friend, if you are a Christian, do you know this? If you are a Christian, you have been given the power of God through the indwelling spirit. Yes? The same spirit, I might add, who spoke creation to existence and raised Jesus from the dead indwells you. Okay? You've also been given the word of God which shows you the will of God. You don't have to look into your alphabet soup or toast. Okay? God's will is not lost. It is in your laps. To pursue glad obedience in the light of gospel of Christ. And you have been given a church To equip you with the word. But ministry should happen by you thus using your life for the glory of God in all things. Do you realize this? Do you realize that God has equipped you to use your everyday life to reach the community and the world? Whatever your vocation. Whatever your neighborhood. Whatever your relationships you have. God has put you there on purpose. He is sovereign. He rules with meticulous providence. Nothing's an accident. He has put you there, not for the furtherance of your own kingdom, but for his. Those of you who work, do you leverage your occupation for the spreading of the gospel? Those who are retired, do you leverage your time to do gospel things? To use the time God has given you to pursue the Great Commission and to live a Titus II life. Do you leverage your friendships to spread the gospel? Do you leverage your influence to make Christ known? Do you join in with the sinful activities of your peers like copious alcohol use and gossip, or do you shine like gospel light in the darkness of the community? Do you leverage your children's extracurricular activities and your relationship with other parents to spread the gospel? students that are here, do you use your influence in your relationships and your walk to witness to your unbelieving peers? Are you a light in the darkness of your school or hobbies or activities? Not. Do you know this? Not everyone you know is a Christian, did you know that? Did you? You have people in your life who may even say it, but the fruit says something very different and they're self-deceived. Not everyone you know is a Christian. It's just not possible that everybody in Chris County is a Christian when like 10% go to church. You know unbelievers, whether they're peers or family members, and friend, they are headed to a Christless eternity unless they bow the knee to King Jesus. How will they know? Who will tell them? God has you where he does so that you can tell them. So that you can reach the people you know. So that they can come to know Christ and be brought in the church to belong to other Christians too. Now I've used this illustration before but it goes directly to what we're talking about. In the late 1940s, The United States government tasked this fella named William Francis Gibbs. Okay, he was a naval architect to design and construct. This is 1940s. Okay, 80 million dollar troop carrier. Okay, for the Navy, and it came to be called the SS United States. The ship was to have the ability to carry 15,000 troops anywhere in the world at record speeds. Okay, when construction was complete. The SS United States could travel 51 miles an hour and 10,000 miles without needing to stop for fuel or supplies. And it could travel nonstop to anywhere in the world in less than 10 days. It was like an elite, the most elite battleship the world has ever seen. You know what the catch is? It never carried troops. Instead, the SS United States was retrofitted into a luxury liner for presidents, and heads of state, and other celebrities. It became a cruise ship, and could carry not 15,000 people, but only 2,000. And those passengers could enjoy the luxuries of 695 staterooms, four dining rooms, three bars, two theaters, five acres of open deck with heated pool, 19 elevators, and the comfort of the world's first fully air-conditioned passenger ship. Instead of a vessel designed for battle during wartime, the SS United States became a means of indulgence for wealthy patrons who desired, desired to coast peacefully across the Atlantic. Things look radically different on a luxury liner than they do on a troop carrier, don't they? <laughs> on a cruise ship, <coughs> you'll see two different kinds of people, right? Right? Two different groups of people. There's a small group of people who do all the work, like cooking meals and cleaning rooms, performing the entertainment, etc. And then you have a large group of people who are simply along for a comfortable ride. The large group lounge around, they get served, they critique the performance of the paid professionals, and they just focus on themselves having a good time. On a warship, every person has a task to complete, right? In order to safely travel to their destination and to win the battle. They conserve resources, they move out a faster cliff than a luxury liner. After all, a warship has an urgent task to accomplish, while a cruise ship is free to casually float through peaceful waters. David Platt, who I borrowed this illustration from, said this, when I think about the history of the SS United States, I wonder if she has something to teach us about the history of the church. The church, like the SS United States, has been designed for battle. The purpose of the church is to mobilize the people to accomplish a mission. Yet we seem to have turned the church as a troop carrier into the church as a luxury liner. We seem to have organized ourselves not to engage in battle for souls of the people around the world, but to indulge ourselves in the peaceful comforts of the world. Which one describes you, I wonder? Are you fighting a battle in God's war, against the darkness? Are you floating comfortably through life on a cruise ship? I don't have to tell you guys that we live in a dark, dark, dark community. Do I have to tell you that? Saturated in sin and darkness. And you are to be a light in the midst of it. Are you fighting the war to push back the darkness? Are you comfortably floating through life? Which one describes FBC Cordial? Are we more concerned with being comfortable and for the church to do things our way according to our preferences or is the mission first and Christ's glory the aim as we fight the darkness and spread the fragrant aroma of the gospel to a community that so desperately needs it? God is calling all of us to use our lives for God's kingdom and glory. When we come to Christ, we are transferring authority of our lives from ourselves to King Jesus. And King Jesus is calling us to die daily, to take up our crosses, and to use our vapor's worth of time on this earth for his service in his way for his fame. Like Exodus 31, we have been called and equipped and indwelt by the Spirit, and it takes all of us like we saw in 1 Corinthians 12 as a body to accomplish his mission. Will you do it? But before we take the Lord's Supper together, I want to consider one last thing. This will be a shorter point than our other two. Point number three, the tabernacle and what Christ does. The tabernacle and what Christ does. We talked about this last week, and truly, we've seen Christ, I hope, in every passage in Exodus. But it bears repeating. We must not forget that everything the tabernacle is designed to do, Christ did and does and will do. These are shadows of what Christ is the fullness of. Christ, like the Ark of the Covenant, is the Word of God. He is the mercy seat where heaven meets earth. He is the bread of the table. He's the blood sprinkled on the altar. He's the veil that was torn, that formerly separated man from God. He's the lamb and altar. He's the purifier, like the water that makes us clean. He is the robes of priests when he clothes us in his righteousness. He's the Sabbath that gives us ultimate rest. He's all the feasts and all the festivals, all wrapped up into one. He is everything and more. Friend, I want you to see the enormity of this truth, okay? Christ is both the sacrifice killed on the outside of the camp and the high priest who could walk into God's presence, and he's the only one in history who could do that. Look, look at look at 28, 29, and 30. This is, this is in the midst the midst of the instructions on the priest's garment. Look at at, at 28, 29, and 30, okay? So Aaron shall bear the names of the son of Israel in the breastpiece of judgment on his heart when he goes into the holy place to bring them to regular remembrance before the Lord. And in the breastpiece of judgment, you shall put the Urim and the Thummim, and they shall be on Aaron's heart when he goes in before the Lord. Thus, Aaron shall bear the judgment of the people of Israel on his heart before the Lord regularly. Now jump down to verse 36. You shall make a plate of gold, pure gold and engrave on it like the engraving of a signet, holy to the Lord. And you shall fasten it on the turban by a cord of blue. It shall be on the front of the turban. It shall be on Aaron's forehead. And Aaron shall bear any guilt from the holy things that the people of Israel consecrate as their holy gifts. It shall regularly be on his forehead that they may be accepted before the Lord. The high priest would wear the names of the tribe of Israel on his heart. And he would have holy to the Lord on his turban. And he would thus bear the guilt, did you notice this? Of even the holy things that the people offered to the Lord because even they were tainted in some way by sin. Now, for the Hebrews says, we need a high priest too who is holy and innocent and unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. We need a high priest who go walk into the holy of holies through better blood than the bulls of goats. He, he, we need a high priest who would have our names written on his heart and who would bear our guilt upon his turban. And praise God, friends, praise God, we have that in the truer and better high priest, Jesus Christ the King. And Aaron needed to be washed pure in 29.4, and then he needed to be robed in 29.5 and 6, and then anointed, and then follow the threefold cycle of divinely appointed sacrifices in 10 through 25. <coughs> Do you see what Jesus has done for you, friend? Through his work, through his once-for-all sacrifice that he suffered while bearing your name on his heart, he washed you clean. He clothed you in his righteousness. He anointed you with oil as he is the Messiah, the anointed one, and he has set you apart for service as a priest and holy nation. Can you believe this gospel? Can you believe this incredibly beautiful, loving, generous Savior, high priest, sacrifice, and king? He has borne your name, your sins, your guilt, even your impure good works. And he has been taken outside of the camp and slaughtered the way that you and I deserve to be slaughtered and his blood has been sprinkled on the mercy seat, and he has rendered the veil that separated you from God, and he invites you to be forgiven and received into the holiest place through his sacrifice. Is that not good news? Have you received that forgiveness? Have you tasted his mercy and given your soul allegiance to him? Have you let the enormity and glory of these truths ruin you to the things of earth and for the kingdom of Christ? Let me share one more thing and then we'll take the Lord's Supper together. There's this man, his name was Charles Simeon. He lived in England in the 18th and 19th century. And when he went to university, when he was young, he wasn't a Christian yet, just a young man, fresh into university, he had... Shortly after he had arrived, he, he, had a, he received a summons from the head of the university saying that he was to take Holy Communion in three weeks. And Simeon was alarmed when he received this notice. And this is what he wrote. He said, the thought rushed into my mind that Satan himself was as fit to attend there as I, and that if I must attend, I must prepare for my attendance. Simeon was desperate for help, and so he purchased this Christian book that he found called The Whole Duty of Man. And as he read it, he began to be moved in heart, and cried out to God for mercy. And eventually, Simeon began to feel some glimmer of hope. And I want you to listen to his own words, which is a longer quote than I think is typically prudent, but it's too good not to share, especially in light of the Lord's Supper. Listen to what he said. He said, it was an indistinct kind of hope founded on God's mercy to real penance. But in Passion Week, as I was reading Bishop Wilson on the Lord's Supper, I met with an expression to this effect that the Jews knew what they did when they transferred their sins to the head of their offering. The thought rushed into my mind, what, may I transfer all my guilt to another? Has God provided an offering for me that I may lay my sins on his head? Then, God willing, I will not bear them on my own soul one moment longer. Accordingly, I sought to lay my sins on the sacred head of Jesus, and on the Wednesday began to say, have hope of mercy On Thursday, that hope increased. On Friday and Saturday, it became more strong. And then on Sunday morning, I awoke early with those words upon my heart and lips, Jesus Christ is risen today. Hallelujah, hallelujah. From that hour, peace flowed in rich abundance into my soul, and I had the sweetest access to God through my blessed Savior. As we come to the Lord's table, forget not why we get to partake at all. It's because of the initiative, the grace, the mercy, the love, the incarnation of the Son of God, the perfect life, the substitutionary death as the truly spotless lamb, the resurrection bodily from the dead by the Spirit of God as firstfruits. His ascension in the presence of God is sending the Holy Spirit to all who believe on him. We get to come near to him and to one another and feast on the better bread of the presence and the better drink of the blood of the covenant. And that should do something to us, shouldn't it? It should make us, like Simeon, shout his praises to worship him in spirit and in truth in his way and go out and live our lives utterly for him so that more can know of his beauty and sweetness.